Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is our land and we have nowhere to go. We are strong. And we are united, and we will not give up our country or its future. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. Hundreds of Bay Area Ukrainians and allies gathered at Civic Center Plaza on Thursday afternoon. It was an emotional and impassioned gathering one day after Russian forces began attacking eastern Ukraine. I see the world just looking from afar providing sanctions and not willing to do anything else until it reaches them. And I hope to bring attention of the world that this is a serious matter. That's Roman Milanke, who wanted to help raise awareness of what was happening to his home country. For others, like Ghana Alexenko, who's lived in San Francisco for six years, the news of the war has been debilitating. I can't sleep. I haven't eaten 24 hours because I can't. I'm here and my family is in Ukraine and I want to be there. I want to protect them. I want to stop that. But I can't do anything basically right now. I feel... I feel so much pain and I I feel powerless at the same time. The Bay Area is home to over 50,000 residents with Ukrainian heritage and about 120,000 people with ties to Russia. With so much news spreading about what's happening in Ukraine, Bay Area residents like Fedor Datnov wanted to clarify what this conflict is about. I want to say that like right now a lot of people are saying that Russia invaded. Uh, Ukraine, I want to highlight that it's not Russia, it's Putin. He has personal responsibilities for everything that's going on there. Today, I'm joined by Stephen Fish, a political scientist who teaches at UC Berkeley. He's an international affairs expert who specializes in democracy and authoritarianism. Professor Fish will explain the motives of Russian President Vladimir Putin, what can be done to halt his invasion of Ukraine, and the stakes of this new war for Americans. Professor Fish, it's great to have you on Fifth Emission. It's a pleasure to join you, Cecilia. President Biden has announced new harsh sanctions against Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Help us understand what strategic interests does the United States have in Ukraine right now? The United States has an enormous interest in Ukraine right now, in part because uh, we are interested in preserving the post-war international order, especially in Europe which has enabled Europe to live for three quarters of a century, ever since the end of World War II, in peace. What Putin is doing by surrounding and invading and trying to annex a weaker neighbor is basically completely scrapping that whole post-war order that's enabled Europeans to live in relative security and peace and is returning Europe to his kind of 19th century dream of empires clashing with empires. And this promises to produce an entirely different Europe. And this is it's very much in America's interest, economic and political interest, to stand up to Putin at this point. It's also in our in the interests of democracies in the world in general. And like it or not, we're the leading democracy in the world. Putin's attack is not just on Ukraine. 
His attack is on global democracy and liberalism. His mind has been fixed on undermining democracy around the world. It's become his big project, sabotaging democracy in Western Europe and in the United States by polluting our social media with disinformation designed to divide people. If we're going to live in a world where President Putin and his wannabes like Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson and Mike Pompeo and Prime Minister Viktor Orban of Hungary, uh, you know, call the tune, and then in fact, Putin's victory would be a good thing. But of course, none of us want to live in that world. I don't care if you're on the you know, right center, left center, or or you're extremely progressive. That's not the kind of world we need. We want to live in. And, you know, at this point, Biden and other international leaders are issuing harsh economic sanctions to stop Putin's efforts. Do you think that will be enough? What has been imposed so far will bite, but it won't be enough. The Biden administration is bringing in these sanctions gradually, and I certainly hope that they have stronger sanctions than those that were announced today. Absolutely of of crucial importance here is the West's ability and willingness to exclude Russia from the SWIFT system. That's the system basically, you know, in which banks and other entities transfer money, move money around. If you're excluded from the SWIFT system, Russia's in it, the whole world's in it for the most part, you really can't engage in money transfers anywhere outside your country. And even within your country, you become more constrained. That sanction would really apply some serious economic pressure on Putin. Remember, what Putin cares about is not a prosperous country or a happy people. What he cares about is maintaining power and pursuing his delusion, his dream, his deluded dream of reassembling the former Russian empire, which includes Ukraine and Belarus and Kazakhstan and all the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Finland, you know, putting that territory all back together and calling it Russia again. That's his big goal. And in order to obstruct that goal, in order to, to slow him down and stop him from pursuing it, we have to impose costs that are higher than the benefits that he expects to get. The problem is that would require some sacrifice from ourselves. You know, Putin has made clear that if they're cut off from the SWIFT system, that he would cut off oil and gas exports to Europe right away. Well, that would mean that Germans and other Europeans are going to have to put up with much higher gas prices. It would leave us scrambling in the United States to help Europeans source more gas. It would require real sacrifice of us. Are we willing to actually pay a little price ourselves to preserve a world that is not run by the likes of Putin? I would certainly hope we are. I want to talk about those sacrifices a little bit more. You mentioned, you know, gas prices going up in the Bay Area. People are already talking about that quite a bit. Um, explain how else this situation may disrupt our lives here in the United States and, and even locally here in the Bay Area. It won't have a huge impact on our lives, frankly, in the United States and in the Bay Area. We might see gas prices go up. You know, we might see our own stock markets actually decline, as they oftentimes do in times of war. But there's no reason to expect them to continue to decline unless Putin wins in Ukraine, unless it looks like the future of Europe is going to be one of war and threats of war. In that case, we could see a real long term hit to our economy. But Americans need to brace ourselves from some sacrifice. Progressives need to accept the fact that maybe we need to spend a little bit more on defense. 
in coming years. But if we all pull together and are able to set Putin back on this, the cost to us in terms of our daily lives will be tolerable. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. There are so many Bay Area residents right now that are deeply concerned about their loved ones back in Ukraine. Aside from bloodshed and death, what do Ukrainians have to fear right now? What might life under Russian rule look like for them? It's going to be horrible. You know, it's going to be horrible. Putin has made it clear that since Ukrainians don't want to join Russia, since practically no Ukrainian share in his project of Russia reincorporating Ukraine, he's going to he's having an entirely hostile population on his hands right now. Governing that population, controlling 40 million people, For a country of 140 million people to try to control a country of 40 million people is going to be a very tall task. And here we oftentimes hear that the Ukrainian army is outgunned by the Russian army. That's undoubtedly true. But the Ukrainian army can also put up some resistance. We've already seen tales of heroism today in that respect. And the Ukrainian people themselves, many of whom have armed themselves with military-grade weapons sitting in their houses, 25-year-old moms, seen a lot of cases of this and spoken with many people in Ukraine who I'm acquainted with who said they are ready to fight if the the Russians will have to go house to house to put them down. Putin can pull off his little coup in Kiev and put his own puppet in, and he can take land. But the fact is he's facing a completely hostile population. That's going to be hard to govern. Are we heading into a new Cold War era, or is it too early to say? How do you feel about this? You know, Cecilia, we're way past a new Cold War era. We're into an era of something that's much more dangerous than the Cold War. We oftentimes forget that during the Cold War, most of the time, with the exception of a few crises and a couple of wars that were fought by proxies in developing countries, relations between the United States and the Soviet Union were pretty stable. What we see now is something that's far, far more serious, far more dangerous, far more likely to lead to nuclear confrontation between the superpowers than anything we saw in the Cold War, with the exception of a few moments like the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm often asked this question, are we headed toward a new Cold War? And my answer is, as I told you, is we are way past a Cold War. I haven't decided yet how to what to call this thing. Mm. A new hot war, an old hot war, I'm not sure, but it's not cold and it's worse than cold. You know, as someone who studies democracy and teaches political science, it's moments like this that remind us how important it is to remember how we got here. What do you think sort of the big takeaway for Americans who aren't engaged in global geopolitics in this way that you are, maybe others are, you know, what what what's sort of the big takeaway for them to really understand about this situation? Well, Cecilia, honestly, I think the big takeaway is is to face what I think actually is going on right here, big picture, big underlying picture, which is that you have a really remarkable kind of moral clarification going on here in the world, right? If we go back to the Cold War, you know, the Soviet Union was usually wrong in our point of view in international relations and vice versa, but sometimes they were on the right side and sometimes we were on the wrong side. There were times when you know it was pretty morally ambiguous, but over the last 15 years or so, 
What we've seen is this remarkable moral clarification where the Soviet Union and the, China, the Russia and China and their allies, Trump, Pompeo, Tucker Carlson, Hungary's Orban, uh, Brazil's Bolsonaro, basically all the kind of police state brutalists who in, whose policies are in fact profoundly regressive. I mean, social policy on women's rights and on violence against women, on LGBT rights, for example, now, is profoundly regressive in Russia. Mm -hmm. Ukraine, a democracy, passed a law recently that, uh, that forbade discrimination based on sexual orientation in the workplace. In Russia, Putin actually pushed through a law that banned what he called homosexual pornography. It was a horrible law. It associated being gay with being pedophilic. It encouraged a whole wave of violence against LGBT people in Russia. These countries, both in terms of their international activity and their domestic politics, have become you know, exemplars of everything that Democrats and liberals around the world despise. And in the meantime, we've kind of gotten better. I mean, if you look at changes in the rights of women, if you look at the progress we've made in the United States and in Western Europe, look at the fact that our Senate had two women 20 years ago. Now it has 27. And if they win, if those guys win, they want to take the world back to this uh, you know, land of traditional values and racial hierarchies and gender hierarchies and sexual orientation hierarchies. Frankly, you know, everything progressives care about is at stake here. Recently in the West, we've been so bogged down with, and I think for good reason, investigating the crimes of our own history. So this has become a preoccupation in the United States, studying slavery and Jim Crow, the genocide against Native Americans. All those things happen. They were horrific. Their legacies last until today. But if we just stick there, which some progressives are prone to do, instead of celebrating our accomplishments and saying, look how far we've come when it comes to women's rights, LGBT, African-American rights, the rights of people of color in general. And so we need to kind of regain our moral self-assurance, our brio, kind of our, our you know, remoralize our side for this fight against what's going to be a long-term battle against, frankly, what I hate to, it doesn't sound like an exaggeration, but it really isn't anymore. You know, the forces of darkness versus the forces of light. Mm -hmm. I appreciate what you're saying, because this is about reminding Americans to keep a global perspective, which sometimes gets lost in, you know, the issues so many of us talk about these days. Professor Fish, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Cecilia. Stephen Fish is a professor of political sciences at UC Berkeley. You can find ongoing coverage of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and stories about how it's affecting local Bay Area residents on sfchronicle.com and on the Chronicle app. Big thanks to Karen Creighton for collecting the audio you heard from the Thursday rally, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and to you for listening. Let's give the last word to Fedor Dotnov, who has a suggestion on how you can help. There are a lot of donations uh, going on and fundraising to support like Ukraine. So if you can donate anything, uh, please do that. If you can spread the information, please do that. Uh, right now, I would say the silence is our worst enemy and we should stick together.